Welcome to Calvary the Rock Podcast. Storms come into the lives of all God's people, and here in Acts 27, the Apostle Paul encounters a real-life hurricane out on the open seas on his way to Rome, where his case will be heard by Caesar. Woven into this incident at sea are invaluable spiritual insights that will encourage anyone serving God in the midst of adversity. And now, for Pastor Ross Reinman. Alrighty, I welcome you to your seats. Grab your Bibles. It's good to be back in Acts. We're at the end of Acts. We've had a little break for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and it's good to find our way back at chapter 27. Uh, you know there's only two chapters left. It's really a, a voyage to Rome, in which we'll begin uh, this morning. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. It, it just encourages us so much. And we thank you, Lord, even, a, even just the narrative of, of how Paul goes to Rome on a journey on, on the sea speaks to our hearts in so many ways about some of the storms that come our way and the way that Paul handled himself and models for us just the way to find peace uh, when we find ourselves ups- upside down. And so we just thank you for your great love and that you've called us here for a reason. You have something to say to each one. Uh, help us to hear not to miss out on your life-giving word. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, one of the more frightening moments in my entire life happened on the open seas aboard what is called a pump boat there in the Philippines doing a summer missionary internship. I have a picture of the boat. And this is a picture of the picture. And so uh, this is called a pump boat, and it's the way you'd get around. We're on an island in the South China Sea there. It's early 80s. And uh, we needed to get around a little peninsula, and so we got on board, but unfortunately, right before we got on board, there was a a group of Filipinos talking about a tragedy that occurred not too long before. Uh, In that very route, there was a storm, and that pump boat uh, capsized, and there were no survivors because of the sharks. And then I heard, all aboard. (laughs) I've got a thing about sharks. I don't even go to the beach. And if I go to the beach, I won't even dip my toe in anymore because I just can picture, da-dum, da-dum, looking for my toes. Oh, man. And so, yeah, no. Um, So we got on the boat, and things were going fine. And I do have a picture of me in the 80s of 20 one years old on the boat. I don't, that's not a caterpillar on my face. Everybody was the Marlboro man in the 80s, okay? 
And so look at, I have so much hair, it's blowing back there. Yeah, no. Oh. Well, take a look at that, take a look at the picture, and what I want you to see is what we didn't see when we got on the boat. You see the background. You see the clouds? Well, shortly after this picture was taken, uh, panic with all the crewmen pulling tarps, tying things down, calling me, making gestures, pulling me out of that very nice, comfortable position uh, to lock down underneath tarps. And then suddenly I saw why. Thank you for that picture. Make it go away. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, a typhoon was upon us. We were up and down and up and down. Everyone was seasick physically all around me. It was like dodgeball from people getting sick, you know, when I'm saying, oh, I'm sorry. Ah, let's be real, okay? That's what was happening. People were screaming and uh, the wind was howling and the worst part for me personally was the sound of the boat breaking apart. And if they hadn't talked about the sharks right before, I would have been a lot better. So then I'm thinking, you know, and I do this, I always have. When I get nervous, I crack jokes. I just had to do it. So I whispered into the guy next to me, Randy, another Bible college student. I just said, um, American missionaries perish at sea, video at 11. (laughs) He didn't laugh very much. So then oh, we started singing and praying. And here's the song in front of God. This is what came out of my mouth. In moments like these, I sing out a song. I sing out a love song to Jesus. So wait, do you remember the 80s song? In moments like these, I sing out a love song to Jesus. Yeah, that's enough. You're bringing back bad memories. <laughs> So we sang, and, you know, the storm subsided, obviously, and we happily debarked, and most gratefully, to this little dark lagoon, wet and rainy, a lot of banana leaves and palm trees, and, oh, we were standing around, and the Filipinos went to our Tagalog-speaking leader and said, why were those Americans singing? And we got to share the gospel. And what I said, I remember saying it brought us peace to worship Ang Panginoon, which is the Lord. And uh, it brought us peace. We cried out to him. We were singing. And then they said, but you looked happy. Well, when you sing about the Lord who holds your life in his hands, you can rest assured even in the storm. It was just a beautiful time to share the gospel, and I was so glad to have a translator there who did a great job. And so here in Acts 27, you figured it out. Someone else is going to need the Lord's peace in a very similar situation. Traversing the stormy seas of the Mediterranean, Paul the prisoner, the apostle, he's in chains for Christ, and he has been for two years 
falsely accused, you know, uh, by people who hate the gospel, don't like to hear the truth, and are enemies of God. And so he's gotten in trouble for being a really good Christian and sharing the faith. And so he's locked up. He's been caught up in a legal battle there for two years. When during this time he felt his life might be in danger, he made the bold move of appealing to Caesar in Rome. And it was the Roman governor's duty to ship him off, quite literally, to Italy to stand trial before uh, the emperor. Now, uh, while they're waiting for the arrangements to be made during the time left at Caesarea, Paul's been preaching up a storm there, um, sharing his testimony, sharing the gospel. Uh, the political dignitaries who are there at Caesarea, at Herod's house, uh, palace, where Paul is prisoner, keep calling him in. And they want to hear the gospel. And he, for two years, shares the gospel with, with Roman officials, royalty, King Agrippa. King Agrippa says, man, after hearing you, I'm almost there. Paul, I'm almost there. And so the Lord has allowed the two years of Paul to be chained so that he could bring the gospel to these uh, leaders. But now the time has finally come for Paul's appeal to be facilitated. It's time to go to Rome. Uh, it's time to leave Israel and make that fateful journey by sea. And, uh, here we go. Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a wild ride. Verse 1. Now, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coasts of the province of Asia, we call that Turkey, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, the centurion in charge, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy or Rome and put us on board. So let's pause there. We'll, we'll make it through the chapter, Lord willing. Uh, number one would be all aboard, all right, all aboard. Now, I've got a map to just kind of get us all situated. And I got a little laser pointer here. I really do. Some people call this the fourth missionary journey because wherever Paul goes, Christ is in his heart, and wherever Paul is, he considers an unsaved person the mission field. And so here we've got the fourth missionary journey of sorts. But actually, it's a trip from Caesarea, Israel, up to Sidon, where he's going to stop and visit his friends. Uh, then uh, this ship is a coasting vessel, and we've been told that it's from Adramidium. So actually, it's just going home, back to its port. And it's a coasting vessel, all right? They know they need to get to Rome. 
And so they're going to look for a ship that's a lot bigger and that's a better sea-going vessel. And they're going to find that at Myra. And so at Myra, they go aboard the larger ship from... uh, This ship is from Alexandria. So you see how that could have happened there, right? And so they're going to stop here. They're waiting. It's a grain ship. The centurion puts the prisoners on board there, and they're going to make their way toward Rome. So they think they usually go uh, this way, but the wind stops them. They're going to make it to Fair Havens and... Actually, this verse that we just read, they just make it this far. But uh, the rest of the chapter, 27, gets you to the beaches of Malta. That's where, Lord willing, we will end, all right? But chapter 28, the final chapter of the book of Acts, uh, uh, is the record of the trip from Malta to Rome, where the book of Acts ends, sort of ends. We're sort of in chapter 29, of the book of Acts, if you know what I mean. And so we'll take a look there now. Who's on board? Uh, The captain and the crew, the centurion, and of course, the scriptures always paint centurions as decent, upstanding men. 10 or 12 times we hear about these centurions, and there's never a bad word about them, and we're going to see that again with this guy, um, Julius. And there are some soldiers, and then we've got the we, Well, the we passages always means that the historian Luke, who's writing um, book one about the gospel of Christ, and book two, the book of Acts, the acts of the Holy Spirit working through God's people. And so Luke's on board, and Aristarchus also. Aristarchus came with Paul as one of those Gentile brothers who when Paul was going from Gentile church, planting Gentile church, he said, let's take a big love offering for Jerusalem, the church where we all got our start from. And so they did, and each church sent a representative. Remember, Aristarchus from Thessalonica came with Paul to Jerusalem, and now they're really good friends. He's got Luke on one side, He's got Aristarchus on the other and a Roman soldier on, uh, in between them. Now, how did, that, how did that happen? Well, Roman citizens, they had great favor. And so uh, all Roman citizens could have slaves. And so these two guys are sitting around. Hey, it's time. Paul's leaving. And, and, and what do you hear? You hear Luke say to Aristarchus, man, we could be passed off as slaves. We could be his slaves, man. I could be his personal physician. And you could be personal attendant. And it worked. Uh, they get to go along on the journey, serving the Apostle Paul, who's a highly esteemed Roman citizen who's not condemned with the other prisoners on board because it says, and some other prisoners, the Greek is some different classes of prisoners. These guys were condemned and ready to die and sent to Rome for entertainment purposes. They like to watch that kind of thing. But Paul has not been condemned. Paul is on appeal. And Paul is allowed to have attendance. And so, first of all, what a blessing to be the slave of the apostle Paul, the servant, right? And then to get worked into the word of God because of your willingness to put yourself aside and serve uh, the apostle in that way. And also... The reward, that which you've done to the least of these, you visit 
me, Jesus says, in prison. How much more attending the needs of this prisoner, the Apostle Paul as well. Just amazing. So the first stop, let me just say, and we'll, and we'll move around. They, they stop at Sidon where, where Julius says, hey, don't you've got some friends here? The centurion. Why don't you go and get re, resupplied? It's going to be a long journey. Oh, I trust you. I mean, he likes the Apostle Paul. He trusts him. We don't even know if he sent a soldier along. And she said, he's the kind of guy he's going to come back here. We already know. Who wouldn't like the Apostle Paul? Anybody who didn't have an axe to grind or hate the truth or fighting a personal war with God, yeah, they're not going to like the Apostle Paul. But here's a man full of the fruit of the Spirit. He's trustworthy. He's friendly. He's caring. He's loving. He's wise. He uses his words graciously. And the guy already has taken a liking to him. Hey, you've got some friends here. There's a church here with your kind. Why don't you go visit them? And so he does. Can you imagine that home fellowship group night? <laughs> Knock at the door. Paul's there. Hi. <laughs> this is my friend, the soldier. And these you, they already knew Luke and Aristarchus. My thought on this is that if there was a soldier... That soldier is a brother now because there's no way that, that he saw that outpouring. They took care of Paul for a day and a half or so. There's a layover in the harbor. They're loading and unloading. And Paul's getting fed and prayed over and all those Christian mamas cooking for everybody and learning the new guy's name and oh praying for him as well and out come the cloaks and the blankets and the, the little waterproof shoes and the you, oh I, I can just I mean do you not think like this when I'm reading I'm just letting it, all the imagination go because uh, it's, a, it's a lot more interesting isn't it? They're just reading. They stopped at Sidon. Moving on. <laughs> right? They stopped at Sidon. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know what I love to point out about that church? How that church get there? It says <laughs> that there were Christians who started a church in Phoenicia, which is modern day uh, uh, Lebanon or Sidon. And that church got started as a result of the persecution of Stephen, who was hitting that They were fleeing from the Apostle Paul, who was the murderer Saul at the time. So the church that he kind of indirectly started, uh, they went running from him and planted a church. Now he shows up as the Apostle Paul in chains, and they're loving on him. Well, that's just incredible. And so your text says it was at Myra there, southern Turkey, that they found the Alexandrian wheat freighter. And it's a larger vessel, and they say, hey, you're going to Rome. I've got some tickets here. Let's go. Verse 7. So now they're on the new ship, the bigger one. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. Uh, When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete. To the lee of the island means the protective side from the winds. Opposite Salmone, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to the place of Fair Havens near the town of La Sea. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. I'll explain that. So Paul warned them, men, 
I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix, not the one you know, (laughs) and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So we're going to take a time to look at the map. But number two would be prevailing winds and a prophet's warning. All right? Now, The prevailing winds act kind of as a harbinger or an omen of bad things to come. But notice that we're privy to a whole lot of names of places. And I've made this point before. There's a reason the Holy Spirit wants to tell you about 18 cities in 12 verses. Why? Why not just say we we went from here to here? Because the Holy Spirit wants all human beings to be saved. And in order to be saved, you need to be able to distinguish between myth and fairy tales and historical facts. And God, the invisible God, intervenes into human history. Invisible, tangible, verifiable ways so that every man and woman who has an honest heart, who wants to seek the truth, can do a little bit of research and find out this is no myth. There are 18 places that you can go and find out. Is this a harbor that faces northwest and and southwest in the same way? Are these places still there? How about archaeology? All of these things. The gospel is inundated with hundreds of verifiable facts, names of people, positions, titles, rulers, wars, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters, cities, country names, customs, languages, borders. Specific dates are given within the scriptural record. So many details that could unravel the gospel should they turn up false. But instead, these details validate over and over again the accuracy of the scriptures and the reliability and the truthfulness of the gospel that came into the world in verifiable ways. Love that. A lot of people ask the question, do you take the Bible literally? That, all they mean by that is uh, that they don't understand what the Bible is because they, they never read any of it because that is a silly question because most of the Bible is like we're reading. It's a historical record of the, from creation to the nation of Israel and Israel's dealings to, to produce the Messiah and then the life and teaching of Jesus Christ and then the doctrines and teachings of the church and how the church was formed and then a prophecy. But most of the Bible is historical, literal places and dates and times and directions of the wind for crying out loud, every little detail. So why wouldn't we take that literally? You read a metaphor like a metaphor. You read uh, symbols in prophetic writings as symbols, but the Bible's already uh, uh, defined half of those symbols. And so, yeah, we do take the Bible literally. 
What's hard to understand? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How are you supposed to allegorize that? How am I supposed to allegorize this (laughs) with 18 names of places? You see, listen, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God our Savior wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And that is the reason for all the details. Check it out. Check it out and be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, well, let's just take a look at this. 130 miles here from Myra to Nidus, all right? They're still in modern-day Turkey, right? And so now they've taken off, and, and here's how far do we get. We get down to here. They're on the lee side of Crete. They normally would go this way, but they can't. They're being driven this way. And they end up at a place called Fair Havens, and here's the problem in Fair Havens. Uh, it's not the best place to winter, but this is where Paul says in Fair Havens, uh, I perceive that, that a disaster is coming. Now, the word there in the Greek is to have knowledge through experience. Second Corinthians has already been written, and Second Corinthians chapter 11 and 12 in there, Paul talks about being shipwrecked three times and spending a night and the day on the open sea. He doesn't particularly want that to happen again. So he says at Fair Havens, look, but you guys, hey, I've been here, done this. Listen to me. Uh, This is not the time for sailing. And they're saying, listen, Paul, you little short little Jewish rabbi who knows. (laughs) Listen, buddy, we don't want to go to Rome. No kidding. But we do want to go to Phoenix because it's a better port. Paul says, okay, true. Fair Havens has a little bit of problems. The wind changes in winter, so the, the boat won't be that protected. But you have to make a decision. He says, is it worth risking going toward Phoenix and getting blown out to sea? Is it worth the risk? They say, yeah, it is. Paul says, no. No, loss of life. Oh, I see it. I see it coming. You know what's also driving them? This is coming from reading and reading and reading. It's not just that Fair Havens isn't ideally suited for winter harboring. It's that nothing is going on in Fair Havens. There are no ladies. There are no taverns. They have taverns and ladies in Phoenix. (laughs) Surprise. Come on, there you go. All right, so Phoenix is calling these guys when they think that they're going to take a a little bit of a risk. Well, after September 15th, Yom Kippur has happened. And if you do the math, because the Bible's accurate, it's October 5th, the year 59 AD. You do not go out on the sea after November 15th It's dangerous from September 15 on. They're right smack dab in the middle of dangerous. Paul says, not worth the risk. I know you want to go and have a little time (laughs) in Phoenix, but it's not uh, worth it. And so, you know, so he says it's so polite. I love the King James. Sirs. (laughs) Sirs, I perceive there's going to be a disaster. Uh, Now, 
Does that remind you of something? Us, all the time, every day. Sirs, hey, I, I perceive from past experience that the course you're on ends in loss of stuff and loss of life. Please stay the course. I mean, stop. Don't do what you're doing. Because uh, Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice like a foolish man builds his house on the sand without a foundation. The rains come, the streams rise up, the winds blow and beat against the house and it falls with a great, great crash. Sir, (laughs) I perceive from my own personal experience and my own knowledge and the Bible that the, the course you're on and want to take ends in certain disaster. But just like in our text, the unenlightened men with hard hearts, void of the spirit, never know when to stop. Just stop. It was hard enough and scary enough to get to fair havens. Just stop now. But the the unbeliever just, just doesn't have the sense to stop. Stop now and be saved. I told you about the teeny little spider in my sink, teeny, teeny spider. And so I thought, well, your days are numbered. <laughs> so I took my index finger, and I, I, I was coming down, and as soon as I got just above the little teeny, little teeny spider, it moved over, and I was like, whoa. I tried again. It moved again right at the last second. Like, I, do you have eyes? I mean, you're too small to have eyes. You're too small to have a brain. How are you figuring out, danger, danger, move, <laughs> a fat finger coming down, fat finger coming down, and, and it's moving, so I'm all over the sink. Boom, 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 and it's the thing's chasing, but then it would stop, like say, come on, sucker, you know? <laughs> it wouldn't go hide under, I think it'd go down the hole or something, right? But it just moves like, miss me. And so I said, oh, well, see this? I got another hand. <laughs> so I was like, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I tell you this for a reason. <laughs> just so you know. You might be thinking, what's that all about? Well, I'm going to tell you. On the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand-year period when Christ returns. Perhaps this video should light up the sky before they are condemned. The great and small stand before him, the condemned. And perhaps the Lord will show a little video of a little teeny spider who had enough sense when he felt judgment coming down, got out of the way. Love this scripture. I have it for you on the screen, Proverbs 27, 12. The wise person senses danger and takes precautions. The fool goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. They decide, you know what? We're going to play chicken with God. And when you play chicken with God, you lose. Thank you. All right. And so here we go. Thank you for that uh, scripture. And so... And that's how it goes so often. I'm quoting somebody. The, they, Paul, listen, uh, Paul offers, but they listen not to the Jewish rabbi who doesn't know anything about sailing, even though he's logged 3,500 miles on the sea. Did you know that? 
possibly more than some of those sailors. 3,500 miles on the sea in missionary journeys. But they side with the captain and the owner of the ship. Why? There's money involved. (laughs) There's money. Let's keep this thing going. And one writer put it this way, and that's how it always goes, it seems. The scales come down on the side of the so-called expert. The voice of the humble believer in touch with God is mocked and ignored. Darwin gets precedence over Moses. Angry atheist scientists more respect than the scriptures. The opinions of Hollywood celebrities more esteemed than the words of God's only son. So instead of the prophetic, they go with the professional. Let the disaster begin. Verse 13. Now when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought, oh, they had obtained exactly what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along out to sea. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, I told you so. (laughs) You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Well, everybody was happy to hear that except the captain. Uh, Verse 23, last night an angel of the God whose I am, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And get this, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. All right, so let's pause there. We've seen the first leg of the journey, and we've heard the prophet's warning, pretty clear, and now a gigantic I told you so. All right, now, I believe the only reason Paul would say I told you so is because he has some good news accompanied. He wants people to listen to him. So, hey, next time I need you to listen to me, and there will be a next time. And uh, so he says, listen, and I have some good news. And so um, 
here we are, begins with uh, a wind of seduction, doesn't it? Here's these guys. They don't want to hear what the word from the Lord is. They want to do their own thing. Uh, We're going to take a chance, a little on the wild side. And so what happens? A gentle southern breeze of promise. And this always is the case. Now, I call this the false green light. Now, and here's what I mean by that. Now, um, it's a providentially placed opportunity to go our own way, to have what we want, to satisfy our sinful longings. So the guys ignore God's man and ignore conventional wisdom, and they're bent on doing their own thing, and suddenly... Oh, a nice, gentle breeze. Oh, this is exactly, guys, look at this. It's safe. We were right. The Jewish rabbi, Jewish rabbi, look at that. Come on. You know, that's perfect. That's just what we're hoping for. And that false green light, I'm going to suggest to you that it might not be God who's providing the gentle wind from the south, but perhaps the prince of the power of the air. Come on, let's sail. You know you want to. Oh, dancing ladies and brewskis. Come on. All I need you to do is get on the boat and go just a little bit. Just a little bit. And then I take you somewhere where it's very hard to return. In fact, they can't. The point of no return. That's the false green light. Oh, just the right person. It only happens when, you, when you're bent, and I'm sorry, hell-bent on getting what you want when you know full well that that's not what God wants you to have. And so you just lock on and fixate on that, and you're going to make it happen. And lo and behold, boom, just the right person, just the right opportunity, just the right tools, just the right thing. Just happens, the southern breeze just comes by. Oh, look at that. I'm going to just step in and let it carry me away, and carry it away, it does. Jonah, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He's afraid that God's going to hear their repentance and spare them. So he doesn't want to go through all of that. So he goes down to port, and guess what? Just as he's getting there thinking, I don't want to go to Nineveh, somebody yells out, all aboard, Tarshish. Tarshish is just the opposite direction. He's like, yeah, the southern gentle breeze with a heart that wants to go the other way. Oh, and suddenly there's a boat that'll take you there. And then a little old lady, my imagination, comes up from behind and says, Sonny, did you drop this bag of shekels? (laughs) You know, oh, it's 50 shekels. How much is the ticket? 50 shekels. Oh, a southern gentle breeze of promise. <laughs> right? Okay, I know. I see elbows are flying. <laughs> That's always a good sign, like somebody's getting through. The false green light. The devil bends over backwards to provide any and all means necessary to facilitate the sinner's impulse to take the wrong path. So the gentle breeze blows. They all look at each other. Yes, exactly what we wanted, says your text. And then the text, next line, before very long, the hurricane sweeps down. So much for the gentle breeze and the promises. Now, the best way to avoid a false green is to yield 
to God's yellow and red. Yield to those, and you're not going to get a false green, all right? So the deadly hurricane drives them uh, 25 miles out to the lee of this little cauda, right? So there they... Cauda, right? So there they're thinking, okay, they're going uh, to... uh, Things are really getting bad there, and now they're going to be lost at sea. And so here's what they do. Uh, They haul in the lifeboat that's normally just behind the boat so the ship can kind of park out a little ways and then you climb into that boat, the dinghy, and they bring it in and you go in and out. That's filling with water, so they're going to haul that out. And notice we hauled it in. So Luke (laughs) has got blisters and uh, he's saying we hauled that in, reinforced the hull with cables, that's called frapping, and things got so bad, they're thrown in the cargo over, overboard, and the ship's tackle. Now, the tackle is that heavy equipment, the rigging, that is used to load and unload cargo onto ships. And so that whole thing is gone as well. So to keep the boat afloat, they jettison stuff that's weighing down the ship. Now, it's like that in real life, too by the way, if you allow me a little time to spiritualize. When our ship is taking on water, we often need to get rid of things that are taking us down deeper. I have written down here 35 years, which is a prompt for me to tell you, I've been in this business 35 years, and it may surprise you the amount of people who will not throw the cargo overboard, even though... They know full well and will say it. I know this is taking me down, but they won't throw it overboard. They're going to let the ship go down with the thing or with the person or with the thing you're doing, whatever it is. And all you need to do is toss it over for the sake of self-preservation. 35 years. Unbelievers, And believers, the same thing. You know, it reminds me of the story of the monkeys they were trying to catch in the jungle. They have this big monkey trap, and they put the monkey's favorite food in there, maybe some nuts or something, and they make the hole in the trap just big enough for the monkey's hand, and then it grabs what it's been longing for. It grabs it, but there's no room to pull the hand out with the nut. The monkey would have to have the sense to see the danger coming and say, uh, it's not that important, and let the nut go, loose its hand, and then save its life. It's not very smart, and neither are people who act like brute beasts when they're caught up in sin. They will not let it go. And then judgment comes. The power of the Holy Spirit, you know? Everybody in this room has problems with sin. And everyone in this room has something that you like to hold on to that you know you shouldn't. Listen, everybody, all of us, but the power of the Holy Spirit can change us and give us the wisdom that we need and the self-control that, that we lack and open and let it go and preserve our life and be blessed and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so hope is fading now. They're out in the middle with the zigzags should be. 
And uh, it says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We. Who's writing? Luke. We, finally. We, Aristarchus, Paul. We gave up. You know what? I, I love what one person said. He said, if you shake a Christian up long enough and turn out the lights, Christians with strong faith and sure promises aren't immune from losing hope and letting fear take control. Turn out the lights long enough and shake us up hard enough and we can get just as disoriented as anyone else. The lights have been out, the stars, the, the sun, moon, and stars gone for two weeks. They don't know where they are. They're upside down. And then we think, since we don't know where we are, and how did I get in this storm? I didn't see this coming. It was a gentle south, southern breeze, and bam, God knows. God knows longitude and latitude, and he sends an angel to encourage Paul with a message. And of course, the word angel means messenger, and so there he is. And, and Paul has received this many times when Paul just is afraid or lonely or in despair, the Lord shows up and encourages him. So the next morning, after a, a tremendously awful night, they huddle in the undercover there, and Paul stands up in the midst, and here's the um, paraphrase. Gentlemen, he says, not going to lie, you should have listened to me. All this damage and loss could have been avoided, but I have good news. You're all going to live. Not one of you will die. Uh, the ship's history, but everyone lives. Last night, and here's beautiful, Oh, the God to whom I belong, a key to going through the storm in peace is knowledge that God owns you, that you belong to God, that you are God Almighty's personal responsibility, and you serve him. You're doing his work. Uh, Paul says, the angel appeared to me, stood by me, and said, don't be afraid. God's going to get you safely to Rome where you can preach the gospel to Caesar. And he graciously, listen to this, he graciously decided to give you everyone on board to spare their lives as a favor to you. When we get to heaven and Christ appears, the world is going to know what benefits and favors God gave the world because of the presence, the sheer presence of his people. How others have benefited because we're here. How lives have been saved and spared and mercy granted. Why? Because there's a remnant of his people. And this is a, all of these prisoners on board. Oh, Paul, their lives. Because God says, for you, Paul, and because you've prayed for them all, I'm giving you all of them. And none of them will perish for you and your prayers. That's a pretty amazing thing. So, so here's the Jewish rabbi, no sailor. Keep up your courage, men. Who's in control? Paul, the Jewish rabbi. Keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God. I believe it's going to turn out exactly as he says. So we, will, we are going to crash land uh, I could just see the centurion turn to the captain and say, you got to love this guy. you got to love this guy. Let's finish up. 27 to the end. We'll make a couple comments. We'll be done. Now, on the 14th night, just, can we just stop and just think about that? Just picture three days and three nights at sea 
in a hurricane, in the dark. Three days and three nights. Six days and six nights. 12 days, 12 nights, 14 days. God's after somebody on that boat. <laughs> on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. Perhaps they heard some breakers. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow in the front of the vessel. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, guys, you have been in constant suspense, gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. In other words, you're going to come through this without a single scratch. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God. He's leading them in communion now in front of them all. He then broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged, ate some food themselves. Altogether, there are 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came... They did not recognize the land. I'm so happy to see land. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, cutting loose the anchors. They left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Wow, it's a long chapter. We got through it. Last point, the shipwrecked. So they near land. I want to point out a couple things. First of all, verse 29. <laughs> they near land, they drop the anchors, and there's prayer. <laughs> They're praying. You know why? Because there's no such thing as an atheist on a sinking vessel. <laughs> All right? Okay? <laughs> I went online and I was just cruising around uh, plane crashes and prayers, right? So flight 1549 above the Hudson, when they heard the thud and the engines went still, and they heard the clicking sound of trying to restart the engines. And the, past, uh, the passer, <laughs> the pilot came on and said, brace 
for impact. And I read row after row after row of people praying. Oh, you heard the Lord's prayer. Then you heard other eloquent cries out for prayer. People were leading others in prayer. I read of a whole row holding hands and praying. It's called a homing device. (laughs) And it would be nice if everybody in the whole world would get like a two-minute warning in your ear, boop, two minutes to go, brace for impact, or judgment. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? God, so gracious, you'll meet many last-second thieves on the cross, sons of God who just said, looked around at how the Lord was speaking and the sun not shining and the earthquake, and he said, whoops, I think I've made a mistake. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, could you just keep me in mind? Today, this day, you will be in paradise with me. That's mercy. Right at the last second. And so these guys are on the boat. We're going to meet some of them. How did you get saved? Acts 27, (laughs) going down, coming up. And so, yeah, praise the Lord for that. The other thing that I saw that was really interesting to me, a crisis will often bring out the hero in some, but it can also bring out the self-centered coward and meet the self-centered cowards, the cruel the ones who can save the day and, and navigate that vessel out of harm's way, what do they do? They go, we're going to go up front and lower um, some more anchors from the bow when they already had the lifeboat for them halfway down. Paul's been here, done this. Paul knows, uh, you just lowered the anchors and back there, you were, what? Uh, oh. Turns to Julius and says, Unless these men stay with the ship, deal's off. You cannot be saved. And the centurion says, get the swords. <laughs> he sliced that sucker free. Well, that's not exactly what he said. <laughs> and they slice it away and it goes off. And now here's what's happening there. Spiritually, the Lord is saying, that's unbelief. I gave a word that I'm in charge. I'm going to save you. It'll be me. Not your own devices of saving yourself. If you're going to go outside of my plan, that is unbelief, and you're saying, you know what? We didn't need Paul's vision. <laughs> we had a lifeboat, and we let it down, and we jumped in. Practically speaking, without a crew, the whole ship's going to crash, and they're all going to die. So there was a practical reason and a spiritual one at that. Just like today, Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish if you get in the boat of Christ Jesus, which is a type of ark. He says, if you want to lower your own little device outside of the ark, Christ Jesus, then you are going to be lost. The deal's off. There's one way to be saved. You've got to stay with the boat, Christ Jesus. There's only one appointed way, one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And there it is again, Acts 4, 12, right? I can't get that one. Acts 4, 12, one way 
to be saved. Well, the centurion didn't want, didn't rise in rank by being stupid, and so he he cut the things away, cut the ropes, and there it went. How interesting to me, the lifeboat that they had put their hope in goes away, but that lifeboat would have been a death trap. Um, Men who try to find their own way and consider it salvation, often their lifeboat is actually just the opposite. It's something that really will bring them to destruction. And then after that ugly incident, Paul's in charge. So he says, hey, listen, let's eat. You know, people are mad at each other. There's resentment. How could you? Paul says, let's come together. We haven't eaten. Let me communion time prayer to mend their hearts he's in charge again that's just a beautiful thing I love what one writer said just as we close up is it not the believer who like Paul in the midst of the storms of life surrounded by folks drowning in despair the believer is the one who's calm and cool and collected the Christ follower in the same storm with everyone else, but watching out for others, for men's souls, bringing a message of hope, encouraging them, modeling out front before everyone to see the life of confidence and peace and assurance that's available to all, everybody in the storm, and all who call on the name of the Lord. And so daylight comes, the bows stuck fast and the rest of the boat starts to break and here's another. The music, scary music starts again. It's like, well, look, there's the sandy beach. The apostle Paul's going to be saved. And then out comes kill all the prisoners. Because if they lose one of those condemned men, they're executed. So they're going to kill them all. And the centurion says, oh, no, you don't kill Paul. Not my Paul. <laughs> You're not killing Paul. So he overruled them all. He said, hey, if you can swim, jump in and swim. We're not going to lose them. If you can't swim, find a piece of wood, a part of the boat, and float over there. I just can't imagine. Can you just imagine feeling, you know when you're swimming, you know, and you're, you've been out a little ways, and you're, you're, you're tired, and you want to feel that little ground under you. Can you imagine the first time they felt it? Like, I'm going to live. You get to the sand. You want to just touch that sand and roll in it. And, and it just I, that's how I am. I just, go, I just go crazy. The gulls calling, the sun kind of coming through, the still stormy a little bit. And I just want to tell you four anchors that really will help you. And there are four one-liners, okay? Just the anchor of God's presence. He's with you the anchor of God's ownership, you belong to him. The anchor that comes through serving him, there's just a, just a peace when you're, you're serving the Lord and the storms come. And the anchor of faith, where he says, just keep courage, man, I believe God. It's gonna turn out just like he told us. Those are the four anchors to help all believers steady themselves when the storm comes. Can I share in closing the, something God brought to me while I was serving the Lord in India? I take that as a yes. 
So I'm in India. I have a picture of what I was looking at when this thing happened. We're at an orphanage. I feel a little tired, a little homesick, a little sick, a little discouraged. And the girls met us with a gift, and each one of us got a gift wrap gift on our way in. Then we are sitting facing them. And they just did a performance, and now it's our turn to encourage them, and we're passing the mic. And it got to me, and I said, oh, girls, isn't it great to have a heavenly father? You're adopted into his love, and we're adopted too, and praise the Lord for our Abba Father, and you know. Then I closed it by saying, and always remember, this is off the top of my head, always remember, he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So for some reason, girls, can you say that? Just, I will never leave you. And so they tried. I will never leave you. I said, oh, say that again. I will never leave you. They repeat again. I will never leave you. And then I say it one more time. I will never leave you. And the girls, I will never leave you. I open my present. It's a plaque. And it says, I will never leave you. It's like, okay. I'll be back. I'll be back. Wait, how did you? How did you? And then I go, open yours, open yours. They, they all, we all have scriptures, but they all have different scriptures. I get the I will never leave you. Huh? Jesus just signs stuff. Jesus, right there. You know, just a little. Isn't that great? Awesome. And look, look, look. I'm serving and I'm giving to them. And God says, oh, yeah, that's, that's just the posture in the storm because I'll boomerang that around to you, Pastor Ross. Now I'm holding it. Oh, I meant it for them. And God says, you could have used it too, kid, right? Yeah, maybe a little. Oh, what a precious thing. So the posture, put yourself in the right posture. None of this, oh, how could you, God, let this storm happen to me. And after all I've done for you, you're not going to get, I will never leave you. It may be true he'll never leave you, but you're not getting the plaque. until <laughs> so you straighten up your attitude, right? Put yourself in a posture where God can bless you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for so long chapter, but there's a lot in it. Thank you, God, for your great love and the anchors that we have that keep us sane and safe during times of storm. We thank you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. How about a closing song? Let's stand together. You have been listening to Calvary Chapel, The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in San Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.